Job chapter 42, starting from verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your true friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Nemethite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he, when he had prayed for his friends. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate, with, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three, three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapel. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Second reading comes from James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and starting from verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The last reading comes from Revelation chapter 21. I'll be reading from verse 4. Revelation chapter 21, starting from verse 4. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Uh, thank you, Marilyn, for that reading. Big warm welcome to everyone here today. Uh, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church. Uh, and uh, lots, great to see lots of familiar faces here among us as well. And a big welcome to those who are uh, tuning into the live stream uh, today. Uh, don't forget, after this service, there's a Q&A time. So if you have any particular questions about today's message or about the series uh, in the book of Job, uh, please feel free to uh, hop onto the, the YouTube live stream and, and pop uh, your question there. Uh, and for those here and, and at home, please keep Job 42 open in front of you. We'll be reading through that, and the other passages we'll be referring to will be come, coming up on the screen too. For now, though, let me pray, as always, and ask God to bless us as we hear this wonderful part of Job. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again that you are a God who speaks, a God who uh, doesn't leave us in the dark, a God who speaks this word today at the tail end of our series in the book of Job. And so we pray that you'll give us ears to hear, that we will hear you. We pray that your spirit will be at work in our hearts as well, that we might see you and hold you and behold you, and that you'd help us to grasp this word as we think through life and the trials and as we navigate through our pain and suffering as well. I pray, Father, too, that your spirit will be at work within me to help me speak and preach clearly from this passage as I ought, and we ask all of these things for your glory and our joy together in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do we love a happy ending? Whether it's a story, a novel, or a movie, we all want a happy ending. Whether we're sitting down to a multi-million dollar budget blockbuster or just simply retelling a story to a friend, we love a happy ending. But why? Why is it that we love a happy ending? Apparently, studies have found that people generally prefer experiences with happy endings as to, uh, compared to experiences that become less enjoyable towards the end. Now, I don't know why you needed a study to tell you that. But studies have also shown that a negative ending experience can have an impact on your behavior. So if you've experienced a relatively good holiday, but then it ended badly, say you went away to the Gold Coast for a week, and for the first four days it's just beautiful and sunshine, and the next three days it's raining like buckets, and you're stuck inside for the whole time, you are less likely, because of that negative experience at the end, you are less likely to want to do the same thing again. And not just for holidays, but an experience, any experience or ending that doesn't look promising or ends badly, well, I'm not sure that any of us would want to experience that for ourselves. And so, if you ask a friend if a particular movie that they've seen is any good, and they come back and say, no, then you're less likely to want to watch that. And to those who did like that movie, I'm not sorry. Um, we ask our friends if a particular restaurant is good, and if they complain about it, then we are less likely to want to waste our money trying it for ourselves. But according to that same study, the exact opposite is also true. If there is a happy ending, we're more likely to want to experience it for ourselves. 
So a good movie, a great restaurant, a bargain buy, a better quality vacuum cleaner, an experience or story with a happy ending motivates us to want to experience it as well. Well, the book of Job has been a long dialogue, often confusing, sometimes surprising, sometimes frustrating, and did I mention very long? And at the end of last week, if we finished the book, if the book of Job finished at chapter 42, verse 6, then we might be forgiven for thinking that that ending would have been a bit disappointing. But our passage today reveals a nice ending, a happy ending for Job. If Disney were making a Job movie, then it would finish with the famous title card, and they all lived happily ever after. But we have to ask, why? Why does the book of Job end this way? Is it simply to give it a bit of a happy ending, or does it end that way for our benefit? Well, let's begin in point one of our passage as we look at the vindication of Job. God vindicates Job. He clears his name and proves Job right. God does this in three ways, one big way and two smaller ways, as we'll see in verses 7 to 9. So let's start with the big way first. Now, having finished speaking with Job at the end of our passage last week and Job's response, Yahweh then turns his attention to the three friends who are standing there, and it seems to their representative, Eliphaz. Now, at this moment here in the book of Job, I'm assuming, I think correctly, that the three friends were there listening as God asked his questions to Job. I'm also assuming that they probably picked up that God had not answered any of Job's questions and that he had not affirmed anything that they had been saying as well. Remember, these friends believed that God operated in a very small and closed system, right? God punishes the wicked with suffering. He blesses the righteous with prosperity. And Job, you were prosperous, but now you're suffering. So it's clear that you did something terribly wrong. All you need to do is just repent of that and God will restore your prosperity back to you. It's simple, really. But then in four chapters, God speaks. And he says nothing to confirm what the friends were telling Job. And so now God turns to Eliphaz and the first thing he says to him is this. I am angry with you. Very, very angry. Have a look at chapter 42, verses 7 to 9. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends who have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer." Do you remember how God uh, described himself in Exodus chapter 34? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. What had the friends done that had kindled God's anger in this way? We see it there at the end of verse 7. For you have not spoken of me what is right. Now here's the thing, okay. Just imagine for a moment you've got your, the book of Job, and let's say you cut out everything in chapters 1 and 2. You cut out all of Job's responses. You cut out God's speech and 
Elihu, whatever he says, and you just had what the friends said. And if you read that, you'd actually probably discover that a lot of what they said is true. How true? Well, here's an example. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.19, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And you see that quote there in yellow? That comes from Eliphaz. Surprising, I know. You see, what Eliphaz and their friends say is often true. But here's the problem. We saw back in the second sermon, and you head back to that one and listen to Pastor Ben as he walked through what the friends had to say. What the friends said was true, but it was only half true. See, their wisdom was narrow, but they kept saying that they understood everything and that God would agree with them. And they presented these half-truths as the whole truth. And when you present a half-truth as the whole truth, it is an untruth. See, if someone asked me, what is it that I believe as a Christian? What gospel do I believe as a Christian? And if I replied, I believe that God is a loving God and he wants to show us his love. Well, that's true. But it's only a partial truth. So here's the thing. If I said, if that was all that I said, if that one line represented my, the entirety of my gospel, then the gospel, my gospel, is untrue. When you present a partial truth as the whole truth, it becomes an untruth. God is angry at the friends because they had spoken untruths. That God says the friends are wrong, well, in some ways that doesn't surprise us. But what comes next in chapter 42, verse 7 should surprise us. God says the friends are wrong, but that Job was right. Job was right? How could that be? We know that he spoke words out of frustration and, and confusion, and we know that he became demanding. We saw that last week, and he accused God of being unfair. And we know from last week as well that he repented of the words he spoke without knowledge. So how can God say that Job spoke right of him? I think he spoke right in two ways. Well, firstly, Job knew that something wasn't right with, what the, with the friend's narrow wisdom. I don't think Job is dumb. I think Job is smart. I think Job understood what they believed and po quite possibly actually believed it as well. That, that simple system of the friends, you know, God blesses the prosperous, punishes the wicked. I think Job understood that. But that simple system that the friends believed was not matching Job's life experience. Theology and life were not matching up. So Job spoke about the unfairness of God in the context of this narrow wisdom. And he was right. Look, if God operates on that basic level, then God would be unfair to allow Job to continue innocently suffering. They were wrong, the friends were wrong, to say, no, 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 the system's not broken, Job. You are, you are hiding your sin. But Job spoke rightly when he said, no, the system does not make sense of my life. So that's the first way I think he speaks rightly. Secondly, God says that Job is right because God, Job kept pressing to see God. He wanted to bring all of this to God. The cold-hearted system his friends taught could not satisfy Job. When you read through the friends again, you get a sense that they just speak in a way where God is relatively impersonal to them. 
But when you read Job again, you realize that, no, God is personal to him. See, the heart longing of Job was that he wanted to see God and to speak with him face to face. Now, his tone may have gone too far, but his heart's desire to engage with God was right. God says, Job has spoken right of me. Uh, this is the, the big way that, that God vindicates Job, that he justifies him. God says that the friends were wrong about him, and Job was right. Now, the next two ways that God justifies Job in these verses are smaller, but significant still. So remember, the first way was God declaring Job spoke rightly of him. Second, notice in verse 7 that God calls Job my servant. And he does it again twice in the middle of and end of verse 8, just as God had called him in chapters 1 and 2. To be called God's servant was a title reserved for Moses and the prophets. It is a word that speaks of special covenantal relationship. Just as God had a special relationship with Moses and the prophets, so God had a special relationship with Job. Third, notice in these verses that while his friends are uh, to offer up sacrifices for their sin, for speaking untruth, who is it that prays for them? It's Job that prays for them. Job becomes their mediator. What an irony. In Job chapter 19, he, he wanted a mediator. He knew that he needed someone to stand between him and God, to mediate between him and God. And now here, Job is the mediator between his friends and God. He's praying for them because he is the one in right relationship with God. See, only people in right relationship with God can pray and expect their prayers to be answered. So here we have in verses 7 to 9, the vindication of Job. What we have known since all the way back in the beginning of the book, now his friends know as well. Job was right. He was innocent of any sin. The friends' lips are shut. They can accuse him no longer. What Job wanted throughout the book was vindication. He wanted his friends to be proven wrong. He wanted to grill God and get God to show everyone that he was innocent. And in these verses, we see God's mercy in doing just that. Then we head into verses 10 onwards, and we see things turn around for Job. So let's take a look at the details before we step back and work out what's going on here. First, in, we read in verse 10 that God restores his fortunes. So read with me again from verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friend, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Now first notice who is restoring Job's fortunes. It's God restoring Job's fortunes. Job didn't win the lottery after this, nor did he receive some inheritance from a relative. God gives and God takes away, but here's the reverse. In chapter 1 and 2, God took away. Here in chapter 42, God gives. Second, notice the timing of this. When Job, after Job had, had prayed, Job had been restored to relationship with God and then he was blessed. Now this is really important because it reminds us that Job worshipped God before his blessings and fortunes came back. He proves Satan wrong again. Job worships God even in his poverty. He worships God before he was given proof or certainty that he would be blessed. 
He worships God because God is worthy in of himself to be worshipped. But God is so gracious, abundantly so. And to make this point, God blesses Job with twice as much as he had before. His isolation and loneliness is reversed. His family and extended family come to be with him. They eat together. This is the first celebration meal in the book of Job since chapter 1, verse 4. The loneliness he suffered in between is replaced with friends and family surrounding him. And they also bring him comfort. It actually says they brought him comfort. What the three friends tried to do, what they wanted to do, is now happening at the end. Note in verse 11, they comfort him from all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Now the word evil is the Hebrew word rah'ah, right? it, which also means disaster. It was that word that kept coming up in Jonah chapter 4, if you remember that from last year. Here the family comfort Job in all the disaster that God had brought upon him. They recognize that God was the one sovereignly in control. Each of them also generally gives to Job some finances to get him started again. And then we see Yahweh continue to bless Job doubly so. Have a look at verse 12. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Now, if you're an accountant, or if you're a close reader of the text, you will notice that the inventory of Job's farm has doubled. In chapter 1, he had 7,000 sheep. Here, he has 14,000 sheep. Chapter 2, he had uh, 3,000 camels. Now he has 6,000 camels and so on. Same with all the other animals. And not only that, he once again has his 10 children restored to him. Seven sons and three daughters. Now, why not 20? One, I think it would have been a bit impossible for his wife to do. Uh, Two, I wonder if God is gently giving Job another form of hope. Resurrection hope. Job has his livestock doubled in this life, but he doesn't receive double the amount of children in this life. Why? Maybe because when Job dies, it's because he will be reunited with the ten that he lost. For eternity, he will have doubled his children, doubled the amount of his children. And notice in verse 14, where previously the author didn't name the children in chapters 1 and 2, Here, we are given the names of three children, and surprisingly, the three daughters of Job. So we're not told the boys' names, but the girls' names. Jemima, which means dove. Keziah, which is a a perfume. And Keren Hapuk, which is a type of eyeshadow. Three names of beauty. And these women are unmatched in their beauty. Now, the names of these exalted women live on, and notice that also Job gives them an inheritance, which was not customary or necessary under the law because they had brothers who would generally take care of them, but Job was generous to his daughters. As a side note, in a patriarchal world, I think this is beautiful, 
that we know about these three women. We live in a Me Too world where men abuse their power and take advantage of women. In some ways, I don't think that's changed much for all of human history. And into this world, I think the women of our church should hear these words in Job. That God knows each of you. You are named. And you are special to him. It's incredible that the women are named. Finally, in our passage, we have Job remembered. Have a look at verse 16. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Now, we don't know exactly how old Job was when he suffered the loss of everything back in chapters 1 and 2, but I think we can all agree, however old he was, 140 years added on top of that, means that Job lived to a very, very ripe old age. He was able to see four generations. He was able to cradle his children again. He was able to lift up his grandchildren, and he was able to embrace his great-grandchildren. You know, for a man who had so much material wealth, being able to hold four generations in his hands is beyond what money can buy. And then finally, we read that Job died an old man, Full of days. Now that phrase, full of days, is a footnote only given to three other people, two of which are Isaac and David. Right? People who were, had a special relationship with God. This is, a, this is a happy ending. A satisfying ending to the life of one who had suffered so much. And I do want to clear up one thing as well at the end here too. These blessings in the end, they are not a reward. Job didn't worship God and then God turned around and said, well done, now you can have the good things that I promised to you. These blessings are not a reward for Job's perseverance. They are the gift of a gracious God. They are undeserved. God pours out his gracious blessings abundantly. Now, it's time to step back and survey our passage in the book of Job. So 42 chapters later and we've surveyed this massive book. What are we to make of it? Let's have a think about this book in total, and our passage as well, under three headings, wisdom, mystery, and the meaning of suffering. Uh, in terms of wisdom, I think the biggest lesson in the book of Job with respect to wisdom is that in comparison to God, human wisdom is incredibly narrow and thin. It is good to be wise. It is good to seek wisdom. Job chapter 28 tells us as much. But to do so humbly with recognition that God is God and we are not. And Job had to learn that the hard way, questioning whether God was fair and just and with his friends telling him that he was wrong. And in that massive dialogue, we also have questions raised about whether or not God really is in control of everything. And then when God finally appears, he puts all of that debate to rest. Job is not left in any doubt that God is in control. Job's wisdom hits a, a ceiling. God's wisdom never does. He is in control of so many things beyond the wisdom and knowledge of Job. Now, if it's beyond the wisdom and knowledge of Job and his considerable wisdom, then we, the reader today, we've got to humbly admit that we don't know everything either. And because we don't know everything, we have to humbly approach God, especially when things are rough and we are suffering. We can bring our frustrations and confusion before him, yes, but not in the same way that Job did. 
not in the demanding and accusatory way. And when we bring all of these things to God, we may have to humbly accept the mystery in all of it. When the Bible uses the word mystery, it uses the word mystery to say there are things that were hidden in the past that are now revealed in, uh, in God's word. When I use the word mystery, I just simply mean it in the way that we often mean it, that there are just things that we don't, do not know. There are some things we can know, right, in life. Some suffering in life can be explained. You lose your friend in a car accident. Well, it's because the other driver was drunk and lost control. Your doctor tells you you've got very serious heart disease. Well, that's because, you know, you didn't listen to the warnings and your dietary choices have led you there. You failed an exam and, you know, you've got the disappointment of your parents crushing down upon you. It may be because you spent more time on YouTube than in the books. But the book of Job has warned us that sometimes suffering doesn't have an explanation. Yes, we, we the reader, we got the backstory of chapters 1 and 2, but Job didn't, and God didn't explain it either. Not all of Job's questions about suffering and life were answered, and not all the questions that we have about suffering and life will necessarily be answered either. I don't know any more than you why one person gets depression and another person doesn't. Why one person gets cancer and another doesn't. Why one couple has trouble conceiving children and another doesn't. And that's okay. Because another big lesson that we've seen in the book of Job when it comes to mystery is that it's not important to know all the answers to our questions. It's important to know the God who knows the answers to our questions. The God who has said elsewhere, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So, does God reveal any meaning to suffering in this life? Now, as we end the book of Job, I think many of us, we, we still want meaning in suffering, clarity as to why suffering happens. But every exact reason for it is hidden from us. They are secrets, secret things to God. God has his designs, and yet, at the same time, he does reveal some of his purposes through the book of Job and the rest of the Bible. There are some hints as to why suffering exists. So what can we say? First... Suffering exists so that he can show his glory. Remember, Job complained that God was too distant, too almighty, too removed from the pains of humans to know what life is like for us. But in the gospel, in Jesus, we have God who has drawn near to us, who has become like one of us, knowing us intimately and personally, knowing our weaknesses and temptations, who suffered innocently, truly innocently, and was killed in our place. And Jesus suffered and died to show us God's personal love for us. That he is not distant, but he is very near. And, God, and Jesus died to glorify his Father. Suffering also exists to remind us that it is a part of the normal Christian life. It's everywhere in the New Testament to expect it. We should not expect that our life will be one of endless fulfillment of all of our desires and wants. If we expect that, we can only expect disappointment. No, suffering is a normal part of Christian life. And if it is normal, then we are to persevere through it. 
And here is where James, that we read out earlier, the brother of Jesus, uses Job as an example for us in James chapter 5. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You see there, James tells us to be patient. Patient until when? Verse 7. Patient until the second coming of Jesus. And what does patience look like? Verse 11. It looks like steadfastness, faithfulness. Faithfulness like that of Job and how God was compassionate and merciful to Job in the end. That's striking. Job is an example of holding on to God, even in the middle of deep pain and trial, as an example for us to keep following. And also as an example, remember too, in our passage of how God blessed him in the end. The key words being, in the end. Job's blessings in chapter 42 foreshadow what we can expect as Christians at the second coming of Jesus. Now, we do get some blessings now. God graciously does pour out some now, but they are always a foretaste of the eternal blessings to come. And just like Job's blessings, they will be real for us as well. Let me quote from Christopher Ash's commentary here at length. Job knew real prosperity, real joy and celebration, real fruitfulness and real beauty, his dazzling daughters. The blessings of the new heavens and the new earth will be rock-solid real. We look forward to beauty that makes the most beautiful woman in the world seem dull. We look forward to fruitfulness that will make the most abundant family in the world seem barren. We look forward to prosperity that will make the Forbes list of the world's billionaires seem poor. We look forward to celebration that will make the best party in the world seem like a quiet glass of apple juice. You can tell he's British. We look forward to the day that is to come. And at some point in the future, all the loose ends that we have here in the book of Job, and in our own lives, all of these loose ends will come together. At some point in the future, Jesus will appear again, and all who belong to him will see him face to face. And with a gentle touch of his hand, he will wipe away every tear, every pain, and every experience of suffering and grief, and every unanswered question. For it will be lost in his beauty. And then we shall say with Job, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And then we shall hear Jesus say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We love happy endings. And this happy ending to Job is a happy ending that points us forward to the great happy ending for us all. And it's there to spur us on and to keep pressing ahead, to persevere to the end. The experience will be worth it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we've reflected now on the book of Job that these blessings and these thoughts and this, this, the big message and take-home points
will continue to resonate with us, that we will recall your goodness and your kindness to us, that we will continue to cling on in faithfulness and steadfastness, just like your servant Job did. We look forward to seeing you face to face and the blessings at the end in eternity. So help us encourage each other towards that end. Help us to keep holding firm, no matter what the circumstances in life pull us through. And ultimately, Father, help us to look forward to that joy at the end. For your glory and your, our joy, we pray. In Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen. All right, welcome back, everyone, to uh, Q&A. There's one question up on the, um, on the live stream. It's a really good question. Uh, can you clarify why God restoring Job's fortunes was not a reward for his perseverance, but a gift? Doesn't part, don't parts of the Bible stress that Christians are rewarded for good deeds? For example, in the letter to the seven churches in Revelation. Yes. And in the letter to... So the key difference here is that Job was not told what he was going to get. Whereas in the scriptures, there are rewards. So I'm not saying the rewards are bad. In scripture, there are rewards. And we are constantly told that if uh, we are obedient in faith and obedient to his word, that there are blessings that can come and will flow from that. Uh, so we see that through the New Testament. We saw that in the sermon series in the book of Job. If they hear Jesus and they respond in obedience, then they'll receive the reward of that. But here in the book of Job, none of that is promised to Job. So it's important that we don't see these, these blessings at the end as a reward uh, or some sort of compensation for his suffering. I think that would actually then completely undercut the whole dialogue and debate, uh, even God's appearance and the way in which he answers Job uh, would be undercut if we think that this is some sort of compensation or reward. Uh, in the end, though, we, see it as, we should see it as a gracious gift. And part of the reason why we should see it as a gracious gift as well is because of the doubling of everything that he's given. He isn't just uh, compensated with what he had, but God graciously gives him uh, even more. And so, again, Job's ending points to the glorious ending of the Scripture in Revelation uh, 20 and 21 uh, that we will all get to experience one day as well. So that's why I think it's important for us to not see it as a reward uh, for his perseverance. Uh, that's it for all the questions, so thank you again. Uh, again, one final word. Uh, the book of Job has been enormous. It's a huge book. And I hope and pray that it has been a, a big encouragement to you, especially to those who are in trial and suffering and pain at the moment. Uh, if the book of Job has encouraged you in the seriousness encouraging, let me go, encourage you to go back and reread it again. And reread it now in the light of everything that we've seen in Christ and everything we've seen uh, in the book of Job. Uh, and revel and enjoy all that is said there. Uh, Look forward to seeing you next week. We're getting back into the book of Revelation and we're going to see uh, the heavenly throne room scene uh, next week. Ben's going to take us through that. And again, this is, this is where everything's ending up and where everything is pointing to, where everything will end up at the end uh, before the throne of Jesus, bowing down and worshipping him and everything that we've gone through over the last six weeks making sense. Look forward to that. We'll see you next week. <laughs>